Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, whether that is on the YouTube channel or at Apple, Google, Spotify, Good Pods. It's pretty much available wherever podcasts are available. Uh, check us out. Check out earlier episodes. Uh, one of the things you will find through some of these uh, episodes is that previous episodes might involve, might have clues into uh, current episodes, uh, especially when it comes to returning guests like today. And I'm looking forward to this discussion. Uh, but click subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also check us out at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema, a lot of big stuff happening. Uh, all of my Renegade coverage has been up at, for the past couple weeks. And uh, whether it's Q&A excerpts, whether that's short film block reviews, Renegade gave me a lot. And uh, it always gives me a lot. And um, we will uh, hopefully be covering the Atlanta Film Festival in April, so that will be more of the same. You can also check out Leaving the Collection as well as Life Soundtrack, and that is at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. So it's funny because of the fact that this is a filmmaker. Our, my guest today is a filmmaker whom I met at Women in Horror in 2020. She's been on the podcast before. We talked later in 2020. And it feels like I've talked to her pretty much every year, whether for the podcast or for other things, about film-related subjects. And, I mean, not just, not just in terms of writing about her work or talking about her work, but just talking about films. And we're going to be talking about a filmmaker that both of us greatly admire, and I think both of us share share connection to in a long in a lot of different ways and that is Darren Aronofsky and join me to on the podcast uh, as like I said return guest it is she is a filmmaker whom I met at that first women in horror film festival uh we've known each other ever since it's been great to see her at Renegade the past couple of years and uh she just debuted the Black Lake director's cut uh, a couple weeks ago after this year's Renegade, and her previous, and her film Maya is going to be playing at the Salem Film Festival coming up. Uh, please welcome back to the podcast, K11. Hey, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Brian. Always a pleasure. Such an honor to be here with you. <laughs> and one of the things that I, one of the things that I, it's weird because of the fact that I've kind of gotten to this point where once I have you on, if if you're a filmmaker, if I've had you on in terms of a lar larger discussion of your work, I'm like, okay, I think I want to have this person on to talk about somebody else's work now. And this mm -hmm. is, you are somebody whom, based on our interactions online, based on our discussions, whom I've definitely wanted to have on to discuss different filmmakers. And uh, first of all, um, I've I've already teed up, you know, what's going on as far as Black Lake, as far as Maya, but um, do you have anything else to add with regards to what's going on with those? Um, 
do you mean where they're at? Um, how people can see them, Brian? Or what do you mean? I yeah, I mean basically, if there's any place coming up that people are going to be able to see them, or uh, just uh, where I mean, yeah, I mean yeah, just yeah, basically absolutely. what's what's going on with you as a filmmaker. Sure. So, um, so I just screened. We did the world premiere of the Black Lake director's cut um, at, in Atlanta while I was there, just after Renegade, which was amazing. Um, I had to share it with you guys first. <laughs> um, so the plans for that, um, I'm only willing to submit that to maybe three or four fil film festivals for 2024. Um, so this year, it's very unlikely people will get to see the director's cut of Black Lake. Um, the focus this year is still very much on Maya, uh, which will be screening at Salem Horror Fest. And I'm waiting to hear back from two more festivals um, for Maya. Um, and so what I'm hoping is by the end of 2024, Maya and Backlake will be off the festival circuit and just wrapped up, hopefully with a distributor. Uh, if not, um, I do have plans to self-release those um, in a really groovy kind of way. Um, so that is the plan. Um, it's, it's just got to that point now where I miss some festivals and I kind of want to get them out. But I'm also at this stage where I'm not interested in submitting to every and any film festival. I want to look at which audiences could, you know, could potentially connect well with those films and only go to those festivals, especially with the director's cut of Black Lake, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and the plan is basically from this November is to be fully focused and moving forwards with my third feature film, Vessel. Um, that is the plan. So I hope very much to be in Pakistan filming the most dangerous parts of the shoot and the most important, mm -hmm. um, then I can kind of worry about the other stuff next year. So that is what is happening. Okay. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's like one of those things that I, I think I, I do want to uh, talk about that a little bit with regards to film festivals and in terms of how you decide whether to submit to as much as possible or mm. whether just to specify, because I mean, your, your films are very distinctive. We talked about it a bit a couple of years ago when, yeah. when it came to Black Lake with Maya, we talked about it a little bit more, but um, you know, you've been, you've very much talked about being on this journey, uh, the spiritual journey. And, you know, we, we've had several discussions about this and one of the things that I find I'm I'm just kind of curious especially with a particular genre that that you specialize in which is horror um yeah what is what is kind of the what would what is makes it more of a priority to show Black Lake in and Maya and specific film festivals as opposed to just getting as much, because you would think most filmmakers would want just as much coverage as possible. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, <laughs> it's, it's interesting because I think with my first attempts with the original cut of Black Lake and the original cut of Maya um, in 20, back in 2015, that was my approach. Submit everywhere, anywhere. And I realized, you know what? That's actually not the right approach for me. 
Uh, as a teacher, I actually taught a class today on, you know, when you go in for a job interview, it's not just about being chosen for that job. It's about sitting there and thinking, is this job right for me? Mm-hmm. Are those people representing me well? And um, in the past three years, I found that I've had to withdraw from certain festivals because I'm not particularly happy about the ethics. And I feel like, especially in the horror genre, certain horror film festivals, Mm, unfortunately are not run by very nice people um so things like that i find very problematic especially as my films are so heavily based and like on social justice um so i want to be represented well on mm. the festival so it's not even about just putting it out there showing it to an audience but i want the right people i want to meet the right people um and that involves doing a bit of research beforehand on people running festivals, on the kind of people that attend. Um, I mean, my films are, they're like my babies and it's, it's like choosing the right school. <laughs> you know, you want to, you want to make sure they're interacting uh, with the right people and, and um, being connected with by an audience that, um, that cares somewhat in that particular way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know yeah. you, you and I, we, we, we talked a bit when you were uh down in Atlanta in the fall last year. And uh, one of the things that, you know, when it comes to finding that audience, it's like, not only is it, is it important to find the, make sure that the audience that we feel like, especially for, for artists, we find the audience that is right for our project, whether it's films, whether it's, podcast whether it's music whatever like you said it's our babies you know it's yeah it's a part of us we are putting out to the world um mm-hmm. it also matters you know what am i doing to find you know what's what's important to me is find the audience that not only will appreciate it but might get something more out of it too and Absolutely. i i think that's and I think that's one of the things that, you know, as as a creative individual that we all need to strive for, really, in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. And it's about I've finally come to a place, Brian, where I, I, I don't take it personally, for example. And you know what? My, my day job as a teacher also helps this. I teach. And there are times where I have to tell students, if I am not the right teacher for you, feel free to change your class because we all have different styles. And, you know, you are, I guess it's, it's similar to paying for a ticket to see a movie. Some people are after something very specific. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not giving you that, then, you know, go and watch something else. And so I try trying really hard not to take it personally. And I know my, my work is quite triggering. I know it's very different and some people are not ready for it. They might never be ready for it. And that is fine. And that actually makes a very good segue to the filmmaker that we are discussing today. <laughs> because it is 25 years ago that uh, this filmmaker first came onto the scene with his debut film, Pie. And mm-hmm. he, his latest film actually uh, just came, came out in this past year and won two somewhat controversial Academy Awards uh, for Best Actor and Best Makeup, which we will discuss that later. Um, <laughs> when, you know, it's like one of the things, especially if I've got, one of the things I've definitely started to do, there are some 
move there are some times where I have a subject in mind for a podcast and I'm trying to fit a guest with that subject. You know, I, mm-hmm. I've had that in time. But with you, when I when I first approached you about having you on the podcast, I'm I'm if there are times where it's like, well, what are you interested in talking about? Who are you interested in talking about? And you're the one who brought up Aronofsky. Um, mm-hmm. What is it about his work that where it resonates with you so much? So this is a, this is going to be a really interesting conversation, Brian, because I feel like I've done a bit of a U-turn. So, <laughs> so I was um, thinking about Darren Aronofsky's filmography, and actually, um, when we got the whale here at London Film Festival, I, I saw it then. Um, and it was an incredible experience. And I had, I never thought Darren Aronofsky could actually be there with the writer. Uh, so he actually came up on stage and said a few words. Um, oh gosh, the writer's gone out of my head. Uh, Samuel, Samuel Hunter. Mm-hmm. So they were both there and they introduced the movie and, um, and that was nice. It gave me a bit of a kind of some background notes on the film. Uh, I went in there blind, just knowing Brendan Fraser was in it. And there must have been over a thousand people in that auditorium. And I have never heard people cry so audibly. I mm. usually cry. I always cry. But I could hear people crying. Now, that was a really interesting experience for me because through my interaction with that film, I realized just how much I had changed. Mm. And I hate to say it, but I realized just how ordinary in a way Darren Aronofsky was. His, you know, when he stood up on stage, I was like, oh, oh, I'm a bit underwhelmed by his presence. (laughs) (laughs) And that really caught me off guard. That really caught me off guard. And I thought, oh, you know, and I recently redid my top 50 films of all time. And these are not my favorite films. These are films I consider to be exceptional. Yeah. And I was really surprised when I took out Black Swan. Mm-hmm. It is a film I have loved, I have stuck by. I have lost friends over Brian <laughs> because of how much I defended that movie and I realized when I watched The Whale I sat there and I thought I have changed I have changed and then I recently uh, just a couple of months ago when you know I knew we were going to be doing this podcast we're going to have this conversation I rewatched The Fountain and you know what that filled me with such joy because it felt so somewhat aligned with I guess where I am in my spiritual journey, but then with the ending of the fountain, I thought, nope, nope, no, <laughs> I am not here. <laughs> no. So it's almost, it's, it's interesting because I think Aronofsky is on a very interesting journey here. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure which direction he's going in, if it's backwards, forwards, or you know what, time doesn't even exist. So, but he's on a journey. <laughs> Yeah. No, yeah. And I I think that is completely fair. And I I love that I love that you're so open about how well, I'm 
not sure how I feel anymore. You know, and and that was that was the thing that I I was going to bring that up because of the fact that about your uh, top fifty list because it's like I was surprised there was not an Aronofsky film on there and mm. especially Black Swan because I know from yeah here, seeing you talk about online that that was a movie that yes you you very much had a connection to um. And yeah, I I think that's completely I I think that is uh, completely valid, and this is going to make this an interesting conversation and one that I'm really excited to have, uh, mm. even more so than I was already excited to have it. Um, so <laughs> what was what was your first inter- experience with Aronofsky? Was it Pi? Uh, no. So guess what? I still have not seen Pi. I have not seen, and I love Pi. You know. The- <laughs> You know I love pie, but I have not seen this pie. <laughs> I think I need a movie night, pie with pie. That's what I need. Um, but I have a feeling, um, I'm actually really curious because um, I I wonder if that might resonate with me the most. I wonder, hmm. going backwards. Um, so I think my first Aronofsky experience, uh, Requiem for a Dream. <laughs> wow. Oh my God, I need to get that out of my head. Um, I thought it was very bold and it's a brilliant movie. I mean, you know, no doubt it's a brilliant movie. Yeah. It's a tough watch. Uh-huh. It's a very tough watch. And, um, something I, I'm noticing now, what I'm really noticing, um, which perhaps I really didn't see with Black Swan is there's this fascination with toxic characters. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's only hitting me now. And uh, it's, it's strange. It's making me feel weird. Yeah. Because <laughs> when I watched The Whale, I was like, ooh, <laughs> this is so toxic. I don't think I could ever watch this again. Yeah. And... I mean, it's a brilliant movie. I, I mean, I will say Darren Aronofsky's work, I do find it's, it's brilliant. The films are brilliant. Um, but The Whale, gosh, I'd, I'd never watch that again. And Requiem for a Dream? No way. No yeah. way. Um, <laughs> these are characters that are deeply rooted in trauma, mm-hmm. um, grief, amongst other things. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think I I'm and, so- and I think that is completely true. I I think that is completely true. I can't imagine starting with Requiem for a Dream. Uh, that that is that is. I mean, I agree with you. It's a brilliant film, but it it is one of those films where you just watch once and you're like, okay, I'm done. I I think it's mm. a great movie. I'm never watching it again. There are films yeah. that are like that, and it's because of how much of a shock to the system they are because of how unrelenting they are in portraying that level of toxicity. And I, yeah. I think, I think, you know, I, I think that is definitely one of the things that my first experience was with Pi. Actually, I saw that in 1998. I actually saw it at the Plaza in 1998 Amazing. with, Yay, with, with my mom. Um, <laughs> and she is like, yeah, no, I, I, I hate that movie. So, <laughs> but uh, you know, it doesn't surprise me if she didn't like that movie. 
But uh, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll be curious to see what you think of Pi when you do get mm-hmm. to it. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, Pi, Requiem for a Dream, it's like, I, I think one of the things that you can definitely see in Aronofsky is there's there's always a challenging of storytelling technique that he's trying yeah. to do, especially with filmmaking, but also with the way he tells his story. And, mm-hmm. you know, you definitely get that with Requiem for a Dream. You get that with the three films that we're talking about today. And it's 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 really it's really a rich even if it's an experience we don't necessarily feel like we want to have again, it's yeah. I, I feel like it's a rich experience, and I think that is completely I, I think that's an interesting experience to have and to give ourselves at times. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know what? It's um had we been having this conversation um prior to 2020. I think I'd still be very much like, oh, I love Aronofsky and oh my gosh, he's amazing. And I think I think I have changed. I think yeah. his work is still brilliant. But I think, um, for example, you know me, we talk, you see my social media stuff and I, I avoid toxicity now. So anything that is toxic, I will move away from. And I think the characters portrayed in Aronofsky's work, they just do not resonate. And I think for the same reason, Black Swan, I still love, but it just doesn't resonate as much anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of makes me sad to say. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, and that's, but I mean, you're getting to something that I certainly find fascinating when it comes to films, especially, especially as we've really started to get the, especially as we start to get the veil pulled off of some of the iconic filmmakers and how toxic, how just plainly misogynistic during, and Mm. just how relentlessly off-putting their personal behavior is. How Mm. do we reconcile our respect for what respect we had for their work with who that person is? And this is something I've definitely wrestled with, with some of my favorite people who've long been some of my favorite filmmakers and some of my favorite creators of all time. And I'm still wrestling with every time I watch their film. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's just, and, you know, I think the, if if there's a wrong way to approach that, it's to simply ignore it, to sweep it under, under the rug. But other, if away from that, like, definitive way of approaching it, I think any other approach, so long as you're taking that into consideration, I think mm-hmm. wherever you land is just completely based on who you are as an individual. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know what, every time I talk about my favorite movies, Brian, it always breaks my heart that I cannot include Kill Bill in like my top 50. I mean, it would have to be in my top 20, but I, I just don't put it in there because my biggest breakup, as you know, was with, with Tarantino. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's still, it's, it's so difficult. I still grieve that, you know, in yeah. fact, I was talking about this week and I was just like, I just, I'm so broken about that. <laughs> 
you know but at the same time like in my in my top 20 films i i have polanski's rosemary's baby and it's just like oh yeah <laughs> yeah i yeah. mean i gotta pick one i can't have them all so <laughs> <laughs> no it's it's yeah. it's difficult i mean it really comes down to the emotional connection that we have to those films and it's like there's sometimes yeah. where those films just have too much of a personal connection to us that it's mm -hmm. almost impossible to break. And I mean, yeah. I, you know, one might, the reason I wanted to write music is James Horner's score for Braveheart, made by mm -hmm. a pretty reprehensible human being. But I still love that film and I still love that score. And it's yeah. like, I have a hard time reconciling between the two. And it's it's just one of those things. And I mean, you I think you and I both talked about over on social media, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, with everything yeah. that's come out with Whedon. And it's like just Buffy's formative for me. And mm -hmm. it's like now when I did a rewatch a few years ago was after his ex-wife came out with her op-ed. And by that point I'd started to that's it wasn't, it was before, so that was before everything came out as far as Justice League and stuff like that. So it's like, I'd already started to drop him off that pedestal that I had him on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what I, what occurred to me during that rewatch of Buffy is that it was so much more than just his work. It's like, you see the other writers who were part of that you look at the actors you look at what they brought it's such a collection of talent that brought yeah. those stories to life and so it's one yes one name might stand out more than the rest but it's not just that one name that is responsible for the success of the whole thing yeah yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's been an interesting one because I think um, two years ago or yeah, uh, two years ago, I actually gave away my Buffy box set because mm -hmm. I thought, you know what? Um, I'm never going to watch these again. They've served me. So it's honoring the fact that they served me when I right. was a teenager. You love them. You know, I don't regret. I mean, I didn't know then. <laughs> None yeah. of us did. Uh, and it, it, you, you look at these things and I think as long as you know that it served you what you needed, it gave you that. Um, but then it's kind of no longer for me, it's like, well, I'm not going to buy any more Buffy merch or anything like that. You know, uh, that's kind of how I that's how I approach these things. I don't want to feed more money into that machine. Yeah. Um, but I'm still very grateful for what it gave me at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and again, it's it's that it comes to that personal journey that we have with art. And it's like, I know the, the first film that we're talking about here, uh, which we're just going to go in chronological order, uh, with 2006 as The Fountain, uh, mm -hmm. was definitely a film for me that I, I resonated hard with in 2006. I mean, part of that was because of the fact that I was still very much struggling with I was first of all, I didn't even necessarily I was still struggling to acknowledge my personal issues with anxiety and with depression. I recognized I had I was depressed, 
I recognized I was anxious about a lot of things in my life, but at the same time, I wasn't quite sure how to put that into words and much less be comfortable putting that into words. And, you know, it's like I was still, you know, my grandfather had passed away six years before, and I, he meant so much to me. And I, this was one of those films where, because of the fact that this deals with life and death so much, and the fact that it deals with the struggle we have when it comes to confront, being confronted with death and mm -hmm. trying to do something for the people that we love whom are dying, it, mm -hmm. it, really, it really resonated with me in a profound way. And, uh, you know, this, this is a movie that I have, I have absolutely loved since the first time I saw it. And every time I go back to it, and every time I listen to... Clint Mansell's score. Oh my holy God. This this was Clint Mansell, Kronos Quartet, Mogwai. Oh my dear God, this score just impacts me in so many big ways when I listen to it. Um did you see this one in theaters? I did not. So first of all, Brian, I'm so sorry to hear about your grandfather, and thank you for sharing that with me. Um I did not see this in the movie theater. I saw this way, way, way after Black Swan because I wanted to check out more of Aronofsky's work. So okay. I then got the film on DVD. Um, and I, when I bought it on DVD, um, I imagine it would have been about, maybe about 10 years ago. I watched it then and then I finally watched it for a second time just a couple of months ago. I mean, it's a pretty heavy topic. Yeah. Um, and a very beautiful, poetic film, which I don't want to like overwatch, if, if you get what I mean. Yeah. Um, and yeah, soundtrack is amazing. It's really beautiful. I actually don't recall much about the first time I watched it. Um, I was a very different person then. So, <laughs> but watching it now it was again um really beautiful but but very sharply contrasting again uh with with my beliefs on on life and death and again you get that kind of character who's struggling with grief and there's trauma and there's guilt and and it's it's sad yeah it's a very sad movie because i feel like it reaches these amazing cosmic places where people, I'm sure they really, they dream and aspire to be, but uh, because it's an Aronofsky film, <laughs> perfection isn't perfection. Perfection is like, um, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm. I mean, I, I, I think this is, this, I think part of the reason this movie has always been so fascinating to me is because of the fact that it sets up, it's really about storytelling in a lot of different mm. ways because of, and about two different ways of storytelling. Like Tom is very scientifically minded. He's very, it's hard for him to kind of grasp the mythical and ideas, the mystical ideas of life. He's more about scientific, exploration and izzy uh the rachel vice character is about storytelling and it's like yeah. is about connecting with myth connecting with time and space in in that matter and i i love 
that the the film really touches I, I do feel like especially this past time it'd been it'd been several years since I had seen the fountain. I can't remember the last time I had seen it, but um you know I I love that this movie deals a lot with it it seems very structured with regards to Kubla Ross's five stages of grief. Like, you know, mm. at, at the very beginning, you have the conquistador who's, who really is dealing with denial, with anger, and, you know, just trying to make things, make things right very much in the same way that Tom is. But Tom is doing it in terms of, you know, he's taking chances with his career. He's taking chances with his work in a way that speaks to how we bargain when it comes to being uh being confronted by death and it's like well what can i do to what can i do to change this and then the depression he feels after he realizes he cannot save Izzy. and then of course the very end with the uh nebula and i love that it's three different time it it's set in three very different time periods but all of them really all of them are about telling the same story in very similar ways and that in all speak to the characters in a very particular way and the <laughs> nebula is about ultimately about acceptance and finally he he accepts what has happened he accepts the death and you know we get death is the uh is and and we get him you know basically facing off you know, and basically yeah. the acceptance of death and the acceptance of, you know, what comes next and moving on from death. It's interesting because that ending is, uh, it almost becomes quite like in the horror movie territory of like yeah. body horror. And in a way, I it saddens me <laughs> um, because I think maybe there could have been a different slant to it because I, I do love that ending, but it becomes almost quite horrific. Whereas it could have been a very beautiful thing. The same thing happening, but a more of a surrender. Right. Rather than this kind of mutant growth thing happening. So yeah, the, I find the, I, I have trouble with the ending. Now, what I will say is let's talk about Rachel Wise. I love, so a lot of Rachel Wise's early movies, I adore her. Um, so her character as Izzy in this is just amazing. What a wonderful character, a story mm. within a story. Um, so good. And I often find she, uh, so three of my favorite Rachel Wise um, roles, she tends to occupy these spaces of, t of time and space. Um, so we look at, uh, we've got her in The Fountain, in Constantine. Mm -hmm. you know so before she gets all kind of straight-headed cop she had uh she was a sidekick she was a powerful psychic she just kind of kept that part of herself hidden um and if we look at her role in the mummy and the mummy returns yeah. she has that connection to ancient egypt so she's it's so interesting to see her occupy um um these these roles it's it's fascinating to me Mm -hmm. uh, her as a person in, in these roles, um, there's something there. It needs to be investigated. 
Well, and, and you know, you, you bring that up, it, it really makes me think that, uh, you know, I, I've been fascinated by uh, Andrew Garfield in kind of the same way, where it's like, he's whether you're looking at him in silence, whether you're looking at him in uh, that, that main series that was on FX, and I can't remember what the name is off the top of my head, and then you see him as... Uh, Jim Baker in the Tammy Faye movie, and it's like, okay, he and then Hacksaw Ridge, and it's like he's got some Oof, very interesting faith-based, I mean, faith-adjacent films here. It's like, I'd be curious to see what him and Aaron. I'd almost be very curious to see him in Aronofsky role because film because of the fact that Aronofsky approaches faith and religion in very particular ways too mm. that I think would make for an interesting collaboration. Um, but yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I completely <laughs> forgot Rachel Weisz was in Constantine makes me want to uh, rewatch that film at, at some point, <laughs> um, which I want to anyway, because it's a terrific oh, film. I've seen it more but. than a hundred times. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I think I've got a little Constantine. Yeah, I've got a collectible behind me. So I managed to source that recently from eBay. So, but um, no, I, I, yeah, this, this is a movie where it's like, yeah, that ending, I had forgotten. It, mm. it'd been so long since I had seen the movie when I rewatched it for Gang Ray for this episode that I, I'd forgotten just how almost body horror, like you said, that the, the ending gets. Yeah. I almost, I also kind of forgot how sudden the movie is, I uh, mm. in terms of its ending. It's like, oh wow, I forgot it. I mean, I remember the basic place it went. I, I remember the basic area way it went. I completely forgot like the ins and outs of you know how it gets to that ending. But mm. um, it's because I've seen hundreds of other movies <laughs> in between, and so it's like it all kinds of kind kinds of blur, but. Uh, the fountain is something where it's like I I'm I I've always it it kind of reminds me in in a way in the way it deals with time and space it does kind of remind me of Cloud Atlas in a lot of ways. I mean I know mm -hmm. we've we've talked about that movie at times as well, and you know I mean not this one is more this this one is not as more in rooted with. I guess symbolic connections that Cloud Atlas is. This one is dealing with more literal connections in terms of yeah. oh, this this story is part of this story. This part this story is you know, and and then you kind of realize oh, the book is that Izzy's writing is about the conquistador and all that, and then the yeah. last chapter is essentially what Tom is going to add on. Like that's how I've mm -hmm. always that's how how I've always. It occurred to me, it's like, oh, that's how it always made sense to me. It's like, well, she wants him to write the last chapter, so last chapter is more of this dealing with this nebula, Zabalba, and, you know, is more scientifically questioned, is trying to reconcile the scientific and the spiritual in a way. Yeah. That's how I've always kind of yeah. looked at that one. 
It's uh, it's interesting because uh, I love that you just brought up the Cloud Atlas. Uh, I adore the Wachowskis. Um, I recently finally watched Sense8 on Netflix and I thought, oh my gosh, people have been recommending me that series for ages, but nobody, nobody mentioned it was directed by the Wachowskis. Um, the moment I found out, I was like, right, I'm on this. <laughs> now, I've, it's interesting. It's so interesting. If we compare the Wachowskis to somebody like Darren Aronofsky, now I feel like the Wachowskis really do focus on a lot of spiritual work. Um, a lot of their sources, I feel, comes from um, ancient and revered Indian classical texts like the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads, uh, which I've had the pleasure of reading. I've read, I've read both. And... I remember I uh, I knew somebody a long time ago who who said um, who grew up with those texts and said, well, isn't Cloud Atlas like the Bhagavad Gita 101? I said, yeah, but that's that's your culture. You grew up with this. The Western world, not so much. Mm-hmm. So, and I find with the Wachowskis, you get this sense of hope. You get characters that I think you genuinely really like. Yeah. Um, that connected search for connection and there is joy um it's soulful and i think in contrast to that darren aronofsky's work is this almost this frustrated search for perfection and almost this this greed comes in and i found that um, also with black swan towards the end this greed this um alter ego this this greed comes in and we also see this with the end of the fountain mm-hmm. with tom um, you know when he finds a tree um and he's and he's kind of taking it in and then he he wants so much of it and he's like consuming this this liquid this stuff coming out to the point where it's almost like it, it, it appears like it's poisoning his body. He's growing out of it. Uh, stuff is growing out of him, sorry. Mm-hmm. And there's this idea presented in a lot of Aronofsky's work, work of excess. We see it in Requiem of a Dream, excess. Um, we see this in The Fountain at the end. Um, the, um, the, the excess in searching for perfection in Black Swan. And of course, we definitely see it in the whale. Yeah. Oh, not to forget mother, mother, the, the, the excessive chaos. And mother is another film where when it was released and I saw it in the movie theater, I loved it. Oh my gosh. I thought that's me. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) unfortunately my partner at the time was like, that's what it's like being with UK. So, um, hmm. (laughs) yeah. So now upon reflection, I'm like, actually that, Maybe that was me. Yeah. Um, but it's not me anymore. Right. It's not me anymore. Um, yeah. Sometimes you've got to just reel things in and um, yeah, have a good look at yourself. And I, I certainly did. <laughs> Aronofsky really, you know, and that's, that is, that is an, that is an interest that is a great way of putting it. Cause I, I do agree with you that so much of Aronofsky is about excess and, you know, it's, but it's also, and going back to what you said earlier about how so many of his characters are toxic in whether it is what they put into their body, whether it is how they approach life. It is so, and I mean, Tom is very much the same way. Like he should be 
he should be caring more about Izzy and her final journey, but he all he he has to hold on to her as opposed to letting go. And that is that is the thing that is so frustrating about him in this movie. Jackman plays it terrifically, and it's interesting because oh. he had and because this and the prestige were basically out at exactly the same time, they very much touch on the same idea in Jackman's mm-hmm. character in both movies. Um, but yeah, and you look at the Gosh, they really do. <laughs> it's, it's been a while, and it's been a while since I've seen um, Black Swan. I don't think I've seen it since theaters actually. Uh, but I've, but you know, I I definitely remember the obsession, the perfection. In Black Swan, yeah. I definitely remember it in The Wrestler. Noah, which I know you haven't seen, and I would be very curious to see how you feel about it. Mm-hmm. Um, especially given how you feel about Aronofsky now. Uh, and But as a fan of horror, I'd be very fascinated to see it because even though, yes, it is based on a biblical story, it's also very much a horror story. And uh, it's... It's it's fascinating to see the way that they portray Noah in that movie and his his obsession with hearing the the voice of God telling him you must build this ark and but what that means and it's when it gets on the ark after the flood is when that movie gets terrifying and okay. it's oh. this is this is. <laughs> And yeah, this is, and like you said with Mother, I mean, is very much the same way. And we'll get to that. And I have, I have so many thoughts about that. I know the first time I saw that, I I don't know how I missed it. I don't know how I missed spoilers about Mother for two weeks <laughs> before I saw it. But I did, and I regret nothing because it was fascinating watching the audience who probably was not as familiar with Aronofsky as I was, <laughs> go, what the fuck is this? And it's like, oh, this is Darren Aronofsky. Yeah. Oh, um, my God. I love that. That movie was just, you know what? It was, at the time, it was such a good indicator of how I felt. For example, when I was filming Black Lake, it's like, this is what is happening in my head all the time. This yeah. is the chaos. This is everything, all the thoughts, all the feelings I have to deal with as an artist happening in the rooms, the compartments in my head, and nobody can see it. Nobody can understand what I'm going through. Um, and the one person I expect to be there, quite frankly, doesn't get it. Yeah. You know? And that at the time really resonated with me. Really resonated with me. Mm-hmm. That yeah. obsession of like, this is my baby. Um, but at the same time, it's everybody's baby. So if you kind of go back to the baby scene in Mother, which was very haunting. Yeah. But at the same time, it made sense for me. It's like, I have produced this film. I'm talking about myself as a filmmaker. I have made this film. But it's not just for me. I have made this for everyone for to partake in, in a very kind of the ending of perfume. <laughs> oh if you've seen that, right? It's very much like that. You know, yeah. if you think, yeah. if you link ending of to mother taking that apart it's like well this is i've made this for you mm-hmm. so some people can take it some people can leave it that's kind of how i view my work yeah you know it's it's such a sacred process um yeah 
<laughs> no, and it's funny because of the fact that I mean, you know, we're we if we want to, we can certainly go back to uh we can certainly go back to mother and we can start talking about mother. Um that, you know, this is this is one of the things that fascinates me about uh Aronofsky and that how he approaches religious ideas. Sometimes he approaches them from very meth uh metaphorical ideas, but sometimes mm. he's also very direct. And I think there's a little bit of both in that when it comes to mother. Mm. Um and I the thing this was my first and watching this in preparation for this podcast was the first time I had seen it since theater. And mm-hmm. I forgot just, and the thing that really strikes me, first of all, probably the best performance Jennifer Lawrence has given, I think. Yeah. She, she is yeah. absolutely amazing in this. Movie. Oh, you mean Jennifer Lawrence, the first female action hero from hunger games, right? <laughs> yes, evidently. I, uh, Yeah. I mean, clearly, because clearly Alien, you know, went to the future and took the idea. And, Absolutely. You know, I mean, you know, that. we were talking about time. It doesn't exist. So, yeah. We but, can talk about Alien to come out soon in theater. But, um, no, I mean, the, the thing that is, the, the thing that really connected with me so much about Mother in this one is that this, I, I feel like this film gets so much at the heart of what is to be anxious just mm. in life. If you feel anxious in life, but you're not quite sure how to say it, you're not quite sure how to get people to understand it. I feel like that's what this movie does. As From the well. perspective of Jennifer Lawrence's character? Yes. Do you mean? Yeah. 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 And, Ooh, you know, especially when you have Javier Bardem's character, who's so very much in his own mind like he's he's disregarding her turn after turn after turn you know it's like oh yeah these people want to be here these people want to you know i i want to help these people it's like well what about me you know and it's like what about me and i i i feel you feel so much for lawrence's character in this movie that's so interesting you say that, Brian, because like, okay, so now you're like, now I want to watch it again, just because when I first watched it, I heavily resonated with um, Bardem's character, right? Mm-hmm. I haven't even thought about this perspective um, because at the time I watched it in the movie theaters, I, had, I was doing Black Lake, right? And um the way I saw um, all the other characters coming in, like Michelle Pfeiffer's character, I didn't actually see them as physical people coming into the house. It's almost like if he's writing a story, these are characters. Right. And it's like she's against characters in his art, his making, you know? Um, how fascinating. How fascinating. <laughs> well, Oof, the thing heavy is, stuff. <laughs> well, well, the thing is, it's like, you know, you, I, you know, and you, one of the things I, I think is, uh, you know, going back to the fountain for a second, it's like well, the first thing we see on screen is a biblical passage about garden, is a passage about Garden of e- Garden of Eden, the tree of life. So you kind of get the idea that these film these characters in a way are very much Aronofsky and Adam and Eve. 
you know, like Tom and Lizzie are in a way are his representation of Adam and Eve. But, you know, in, in Mother, you kind of get that as well, but in very different, in a very different perspective. And it's almost like it, in a, and, you, but you also get Cain and Abel. I mean, part of that mm. probably comes from him. And one of the things that I, I read about Aronofsky is that he's he's always, while he was you know culturally while he's culturally Jewish, he's never really had a particular spiritual uh, connection to Judaism. But he's always been mm -hmm. fascinated about other about religion in general. And that's so interesting. I didn't know that. Um, yeah. And I I think that's interesting because I think that disconnection really shows there's this mm -hmm. curiosity and that disconnection really shows and you kind of comparing these characters to biblical characters um it makes me think about black swan again we've again with the adam and eve like with the, with uh, vincent cassell cassell's character and natalie portman's but then you've also got this lilith character played yeah. by mila mm -hmm. um the black the actual black black swan yeah. um that's interesting, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, you know, and it's like with with uh with Mother, I this this is it's it's funny that that film it very much it very much takes its time building up. But mm -hmm. it also is moving at a pretty at pretty breakneck pace. So it's got that it's got that duality of time and how it's approaching storytelling in the movie. I mean, you know, well, it's not exactly the same in The Fountain. The Fountain is very deliberately paced that way. But um, the with Mother, it's like you've got this, you know, it. that's where the sense of anxiety really start, you really start to feel with it because of the fact that it's like, one after another after another, each situation just building on each situation. And especially when Ed Harris and Michelle Pfeiffer's kids come in, and it's like the, the brother kills the other brother. It's like, that's where the Cain and Nabel part comes in. It's like, oh, well, very obviously, this is where this is <laughs> happening. But it's, it's, just, it's just a very... Everything is happening, and just it's hard for it's hard for Lawrence's character to keep up with it, and mm -hmm. nobody's listening to her. I mean, you know, one of the things that one of the uh, connections I've seen to one of the reads I've seen this movie, you know, it's it's mother versus you know, and everybody else's humanity, and basically destroying. The environment. It's basically this biblical sense of duty to the earth that Aronofsky. This is part of why I'd be curious to see what you'd think of Noah, because it's kind of in that environmental way, but not in this preachy type of, but in a very different way than you would expect normal. You know, it wouldn't. It's not a strict climate change screed, yeah. but it's it's approaching it from almost a terrifying perspective. Um, it's interesting you say that because again it takes you back to the the finale of the fountain yeah with the earth taking i guess what it's owed um in a sense mm -hmm. so that that will be an interesting thing to compare it to yeah yeah um 
I and you know it's like this was I I know with uh, with mother it's like it's one of those things where there there's a lot of idea there's a lot of ideas in it when it comes to the idea of cults and it's like Bardem basically becomes this cult figure which all these people gravitate towards because of his writing and you know yeah. it's funny oh because God. I I messaged you as I was watching it and it was because of the baby scene at the end that's just absolutely mortifying <laughs> to watch and I'm like how did this came out like right right before QAnon had already happened how did this not get pulled into the whole QAnon modern satanic panic we're dealing with now where all these people think oh Hollywood's so satanic and all that stuff and it, it's like really how <laughs> but it's like that would have been well, exhibit a for me if you're making a I, case for it <laughs> i think really um i think it's an interesting comparison um to use that kind of physical birth that that baby um and then also be talking about art because that's really what art is art my movies are my are my children i don't plan yeah. to have children ever but um there's this um there's this connection here you know mm-hmm. um yeah yeah and i think what mother does it does it in a very visceral yeah. um, uncomfortable way mm-hmm. um and it's interesting because for me mother really um i'm not surprised it did so badly it's because i i really felt it was a film about art and artists for other artists yeah. i didn't really think it for the general audience mm-hmm. um yeah i guess in a similar way i think every now and again a director will just do something they really want to express you know um i thought it was fascinating for aronofsky to cast jennifer lawrence yeah um a very bold choice um but i also remember thinking uh, when i first watched mother um it's like they took the blueprint of black swan placed it over mother and then added to it. Yeah. That's what it felt like to me. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like you you do have this sense of, you do really do have this sense of Aronofsky's work in a way building from like one film to another film into another film. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I know you haven't seen Pi. I know you haven't seen Noah. Have you seen The Wrestler? I have not. No. Oh, really? So okay. Missing- um, so The Wrestler in a way very much fits in all of his films very much fit into this continuum of just building upon ideas that he did before, you know, and whether it's bringing in stylistic flourishes, whether it's bringing in uh, narrative flourishes, whether it's bringing in metaphorical flourishes, he really is building to this, these ideas of trying to like you said trying to figure out the you know trying to questioning where life goes in a lot of ways and how how people react to life and i i think that was i i think that is one of the things that struck me so much and was basically the because by 2017 i was very consciously where my own emotional journey when it comes to anxiety i mean i've been in therapy for almost a decade by that point and i was very confident to acknowledge it's like this is what i've gone through and this is why i go through times and so 
you know, being able to recognize that in Mother and how what Aronofsky does in that film, which resonates me, resonates with me because of the fact that he, he, he approaches it in this almost apocalyptic manner, uh, mm-hmm. is, is, is so fascinating. That's what makes him such a compelling filmmaker for me, where it's like, you know, yeah, there are some of his films I may never watch again. I mean, we talked about Requiem for a Dream earlier, and it's like, Mother, I don't know how many more times I would necessarily watch that movie, but <laughs> yeah. I can definitely say I look back on it and it's like, okay, this is, but I'm, I'm glad that I had that experience because of the fact that I'm glad somebody was able to put that experience on screen yeah. in a way Absolutely. that resonated with me. Yeah. Well, you know, talking more and more about this, Brian, I'm actually realizing the, I think the issue um, that Aronofsky's characters face is that they all have a clear lack of boundaries. And this is something I have only learned in the last year is to how to set boundaries and mm-hmm. practice setting them. So if we, you know, reckon for a dream, mother, um, black swan, um, the whale, if these characters had... <laughs> And a, you know, a sense of integrity and, and were able to set boundaries, maybe their fates could have been different. Um, but there is a clear lack of them here, which enables other things to play out. Well, and it's interesting because of the fact that, I mean, I, I do think I do think there's some truth to that, but I also think there's there's also a sense that getting out of their there are some characters, I mean, especially when you when you do watch Pi, I, I, I think one of the things you'll kind of notice is the main character, Pi, almost is afraid to get a way to push his boundaries of the way mm-hmm. the way the world the way the world works. He's very he's very focused in his particular way of looking at the world. But, you know, what's interesting about the whale for me is that I I very much felt like Charlie is somebody who is very aware that he's very aware of how he got where he is. Mm-hmm. And he's mm-hmm. almost accepting of it in a way that you you wish he wasn't. But yeah. you also kind of understand why he is. Yeah. No, that's the, that's the problem. You see, that's the problem. There. So I think we're all familiar with people in our lives or people we've come across who are like, "That's just how I am." Yeah. And I that's such a sad and toxic thing to say. That's just how I am. I have this trauma. This awful thing happened to me, and that's just how I am. That's yeah. why I am this person. And it's like, well. But you, you have this awareness, you know why you are this way, but it is your duty, I guess, to yourself to, to help yourself yeah. to come out of that. That's just because you know why, mm-hmm. you know, like you're not destined to stay in that state. Um, he, he makes no effort to kind of overcome. Um, and I guess if if he does at all in the whale, he does it for his daughter. But again, it's it's yeah. that kind of having to come back to yourself. You, you do things for yourself so you can be better for other people. Yeah, exactly. No, and he's so and, 
self-sacrificing and things and it's just like no please don't be that self-sacrificing person just focus on yourself no you're absolutely right um you know and you know the the thing that i the way i looked at the whale especially the second time I watched it, because uh, I did watch it again before. Oh, gosh, you to, watched it a second time? <laughs> to, it was a few months apart. But, no, I mean, I, I had the I had the screener. I had the four-year consideration screener from A24, and it's like, I'm going to watch it again because I want to take notes for this discussion. Um, I always try to rewatch stuff, even if it's relatively fresh in my head because of the fact that it's like, I want to have it is I want to have notes for myself during these conversations and the thing that i the thing that hit me so i mean i i i talked about in um one of the things i did talk about in my review uh my print review of the whale is how you know it it reminded me of a moment in my life where my my mother's been overweight basically as long as i remember and i made it aware to her at one point that I was ashamed of that. And, you know, it made me, this made, the movie made me realize, made me remember that. And it's like, by that, by this point, it's like, I, it, that, that type of thinking has been out of sight, out of mind for me for decades. Uh, Cause I was a teenager at the time. And it's like, you know, when, when you're a teenager, you always have the wrong perspective on shit. I mean, I don't care how confident you are, you're probably wrong. But um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, it's like one of the things that the whale brought up is that, you know, it's like Charlie has, Charlie has this, he, he almost, he reminds me a lot of the elephant man. The movie really treats Charlie, yeah. I think in the same way that David Lynch does the elephant man in that film. I mean, I think, I think overall, I think The Elephant Man is a superior film. But I think, yes. the, approach <laughs> is, but I think the approach is the same, where it's about, it's about showing us the humanity of an individual who's, you know, whether it's through no fault of any fault of their own, on the outside mm-hmm. is grotesque. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, I, I think, you know, I, I I think that's where the performance by Frazier it's a it is genuinely a great performance because of the fact that even if Charlie is toxic, which I he is, because he mm-hmm. does manipulate things in a lot of ways to yeah, his he own benefit. Toxic positivity. Yeah. Which um, I only learned was a thing two years ago and I was like, oh my gosh, I've experienced this. So I oof, yeah. Yeah, there was a lot there. My gosh. But, you know, it's like, and you look at, you look at Ellie, you look at Sadie Singh's character, and <laughs> she she's a, she's a bitch, but it's like, at yeah. the same time, like, Charlie, Charlie feels like, well, she's this, she, he feels like she's probably this way because of what I did, and maybe I can help her get past that and start yeah. to see past the way she has felt. And, you know, I, I think, again, we're talking about, you know, again, I've talked about, you know, Aronofsky and Faith. It's like Ty Simpkins' character is a fascinating way of 
approaching that because of the fact that he's yeah. basically an evangelist. He he's he's a missionary, and it's like he's trying to help Charlie as much as possible. He wants to help Charlie as much as possible. And then when we find out the truth about him, it's like most most of the people here, most several of the main characters in this film are lying to the audience and to a certain yeah. extent lying to themselves. Themselves. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Uh, I mean, Liz is really the only one, the Hung Chow character is really the only one who's as honest as anybody can be. Yeah. Yeah. But I, you know, as, oh, as brilliant as she is, there's still this sense of enabling, yeah. you know, and that just made me really, really sad. I do wanted to point out, I think it's absolutely interesting how Brendan Fraser won um, Best Actor for this and how Natalie Portman won Best Actress for Black Swan. Yeah. Um, in 2011, both Aronofsky films, <laughs> both pretty toxic characters, I guess. Yeah. So, um, you know, maybe, maybe we are drawn, I mean, you know, it took me a long time to recognize that Natalie Portman's character was to an extent toxic, um, as were many of the characters in that movie. I think it depends on what stage we are in our lives. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I, I'm using the word toxic a lot, but at the same time, these characters are very human. Mm -hmm. They are portraying very human experiences and they are very complex people. I've been there, you know, yeah. and I think where I'm now, where I'm very grateful and blessed to be is I'm standing outside of that and I'm looking in and I'm able to say, you know what? These films are absolutely brilliant. These characters are so interesting, but they do not resonate with me anymore. And mm. that's a good thing. That is a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing. It's like, you know, the ability to say, okay, this, this serve, like, like you said earlier, this served its purpose for me for a time. It doesn't aim more, you know? I mean, yeah. think about, you know, what, you know, think about Charlie in The Whale and the fact that he, for him to calm down, he goes back to this book report that Ellie wrote about Moby Dick, and that's how he yeah. gets that's how he's able to calm down after a heart attack after and after a stroke. And, you know, it's like, okay, that's fine. But you know, what could help you is if you actually got help. But, you know, the thing is, it's like, like, like you, you're absolutely right. It is really a, a sense of toxic positivity while also, you know, it, it's also a sense of self-loathing, loathing as well. Yeah. Absolutely. It, it all boils down to that. And I must say, when I went to the um, LFF screening of The Whale, having Samuel Hunter there talk about the film, because it's actually based on his experience, mm -hmm. was really fascinating. And that's why I have some love for the film. I was so pleased to see Samuel Hunter there looking healthy, talking about his experience, standing there alive and it's like, wow, you, buddy, you did it. You know, yeah. you urged yourself. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause it is, is not easy. And it's like some, you know, and it's like, 
you know, you you were talking about, um, you know, one of the one of the things you were talking about uh, just a few minutes ago. You were saying, you know, about some of these characters just accepting who they are. You know, this is who I am. Mm. On the one hand, there's a good way. Of, you know, you can. It's fine to have that level of self awareness, but at the same time, do you have enough self awareness to realize that? Sometimes the way you are is not necessarily a good thing. And, you know, it's like that because of the fact that some people don't. It's like one of my very best friends sometimes has that feeling. And it's like, oh, it breaks my heart because of the fact that it's like, I, you're so much, you're capable of so much more. You're, you're capable of being so much more. And it's like, if, you would just like let go of some of this that you have. I mean, yeah. you know, some of it is the situation that they're in, but at the same time, it's like, you know, it's it's fine to accept yourself as who you are to an extent, but if that if that involves blaming other people for your issues. You know, that's not necessarily a good thing. I mean, even to a certain extent, I mean, even even Liz, even Hong Chao's character in the movie, like, she, to a certain extent, she holds on too much to the fact that her father's religious upbringing is ultimately what killed her brother and Charlie's lover. Yeah. And it's like, so that's part of the reason why but at the same time, she also, I, I feel it's like she she tries to, that's also, I, I kind of feel like to a cer certain extent, that's her way of trying to alleviate Charlie of some of his own guilt that he hmm. might have over, over things as well. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's, it's interesting because it's like all of these Aronofsky characters, it's like they are all searching for the light. Yeah. Okay. They are all, whether it's the spotlight in Black Swan or the light that you, that, you know, when you finish a piece of art um, or like we say, like we see at the end of the whale, the lights, they're all searching for the light. Um, but it's like they are, uh, and again in the fountain, but it's like they are dragged down by the human experience of this is just who I am. Mm -hmm. You know, I am actually human. There's this desire to be so much more, to want to achieve more, this curiosity about a God or a spirituality. But these characters always get dragged back down by the human experience of shame, of guilt, um, of obsession, um, yeah. which is a, a theme that runs across all of Darren Aronofsky's work. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of um, it's it's fascinating, but it's also sad a little bit because I'm I'm so curious um, to know what his next movie is going to be like. I I almost want him <laughs> to do a little bit better for himself, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, because I feel like with the whale, it just went so much in a, in an um, in a direction that was like quite far away from the fountain mm -hmm. um 
so this is why I'm really interested, in, really interested in seeing pie. I want to see where that falls on that spectrum of, you know, the fountain and then something like the whale. Um, I, you know, it's like I, I, pie is a movie that I respect more than I overly love it. I, I did love it at the time when I saw it in '98, but looking at now, looking, you know, when did I see it last? I, I think it was probably like. 12, 13 years ago or something like that, um, that last saw it. It's, it's a movie that I respect. I respect the technique. I respect the storytelling style that he approaches, that he utilizes, and the way that he tells that story. It's, it's not necessarily something that I, I think quite engages me emotionally, especially the mm-hmm. same way these three films did. And... Right. um. But I think I think it's it's him very much. It it does kind of very much feel like a student film. I think that's one of the comments my mom made when we watched the movie. Yeah. And more and more, I you know looking at his looking at his work over the years, I can kind of see where she's coming from with that. Um, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but you but the point is, it's a filmmaker who's kind of like figuring himself out. You know, and the fact that he made a movie is still low key, relatively speaking, but also challenging as Requiem for a Dream next is is a big swing because of the fact that it's like that's not I mean, that is a movie about how addiction just takes you over the edge and you know, just that need for that chemical dependency of something to keep you going and how it wrecks you. And, um, you know, it's like that, that is just, it's just a hard, hard thing to get through. And then, but I think that's part of the reason why to a certain extent, the fountain, I mean, you're, you're, you know, you're absolutely right when it comes to Tom and, but one of the things I think is so one of the things that I think is so beautiful about the fountain comparatively to most of his work is the fact that it's like Tom eventually it, it takes him too long, but he eventually gets to that point of acceptance of realizing I cannot control everything. I wish I could, I can't. And it's and in order to do what I can to keep my wife's spirit alive, this is how I'm going to approach this, uh, approach doing that moving forward. I, I think that's where I'm ultimately more hopeful about The Fountain than I am a lot of Aronofsky's work. It's, see, so that's the thing. I think, I think similarly, but then the way The Fountain ends, it, I'm almost left disappointed with Tom's character because there's that greed that sets in of wanting more and bringing him almost back down to earth of like, oh my gosh, I found it, the holy grail. And then he wants so much of it. It transforms him in a kind of grotesque, um, scary body horror way. Um, So it's like he gets to that point, but he lets it slip. Mm -hmm. And I think... I'm kind of left at the end of the fountain with this sadness of, oh my gosh, you, you, you had it, you had it, you know? Yeah. But then 
he became human again. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he lost it. So yeah. 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 I I have to say this this conversation has been everything that I hoped it would be, and then some. And it's because of the fact that you and I have approached Aronofsky's work so differently over the years and have such different varying personal ideas of his work because of the way it's connected with us over the years it it's made this it's made this conversation even even richer i i think that i ever could have expected and i i appreciate I, you i uh, bring up this bring up his work as a uh, conversation point for us i must say i must say there's one person i have not mentioned yet and I'm ashamed to say I've left it this late in the conversation. Satoshi Kon. I'm a huge Satoshi Kon <laughs> fan. Huge Satoshi Kon fan. Yeah. So one of the reasons I, I, I love Black Swan is because there are segments of that taken straight out of Perfect Blue. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. With Record for a Dream. Now, at this point, I thought maybe he's paying homage or something. But I realized, actually, he's actually just lifting out. He's just lifting those scenes. Yeah. He doesn't have direct permission. So... I think at that point I started becoming kind of um, a little bit detached from Aronofsky's work because um, like, I think with my work, I always say I am paying homage. You can see in my list of end credits, my thank yous, names are right there. Like, Mm -hmm. thank you to this director. Thank you to this person. So um, yeah, I'm not too sure about how I feel about Satoshi Kon's work being, um, basically a, a blueprint reference for some yeah. of the scenes um yeah i think that yeah, is, i think that is completely fair i mean if you listen to uh my discussion on satoshi khan's work from a couple of years ago you you know how much i absolutely adore his work i mean perfect blue is one of the greatest films i've ever seen um oh, it's yes. such a tremendous film but uh yeah, I, I, I completely understand that, too. I, I, I definitely, you know, it's like, I mean, yeah, on the one hand, you can see the comparison, but it's like, especially if you read that, it's like, well, he's he's kind of wanting to do his own version of Perfect Blue, but it's like he's doing that by lifting ideas for his own films. It's, eh, how do you feel about that? Well, you know, that's probably, you know, that's probably why Black Swan came out of my top 50. Yeah. Because I had obviously Perfect Blue there, right? Yeah. Uh, in my top 15 movies. And for me, it was like, whoa, I can't have them in the same list. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect Blue is, by, like, it is by far more superior, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it does so, you know, I, I'm not left watching perfect blue thinking oh what a toxic character like perfect blue is just so riveting and complex and rich in in many different ways to to black swan i mean i still have a lot of love for black swan but um you know it yeah it's not perfect blue (laughs) you know and it's one of those things where you know it's sort of like what we were talking about earlier when it comes to uh filmmakers whose whose personal lives just really make it hard to reconcile our our love of their art with them and with who they are and i mean i think it in a way very especially is very similar 
when you are dealing with a film film that so very directly connects with another thing that you genuinely love and it's like you can tell that the in influence is there but it's like well are they doing this because of the fact that they love it the same way I do or are they doing it because for very different for different reason and I I think that is I I think that's that's part of the reason why yeah, that that's part of the reason why some of the movies that I I love are some of the movies I love. There are some of the and some of the reason why some of the other movies I don't love are movies that I don't love. It's part of the reason why I, you know, it, it's part of the reason why. While I I understand why a lot of people love The Matrix, I can't divest myself from the fact that Dark City came first approach those same subjects in a way that I, I thought was better. And so it's like, I've always, I, I, I've come to respect the matrix now more, but I, I will never love it as much as I do dark sea because I saw dark sea first and dark sea excited me in a way that the matrix ultimately didn't. And so I, I think it, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where, uh, when when it comes to art and artists, it also you you look at how they are inspired by the things that they are inspired by, and yeah. you know you you kind of look at you you kind of look at. I mean, I you know I'm I'm gonna bring it up because it's on my brain, but it's you know it it kind of makes me think of it kind of makes me think of the Star Wars sequel trilogy. And you know we, which I've talked about exhaustively on this podcast before. My, if you know me, you know how much I love the Last Jedi. I, you know how much I also don't really talk a lot about the Force Awakens and Rise of Skywalker, and it's because of the fact that I, I feel like what the Last Jedi is doing is so much more profound in how it approaches the ideas of Star Wars compared to just doing a carbon copy of what Star Wars has brought us before. And I I think that is that's that's one of those things where it's like and so I, I kind of I, I definitely understand what where you're coming from when it comes to, you know, your love of perfect blue versus how you feel about Black Lake or Black Swan. Um Black Swan. <laughs> yeah. Uh it's like you know, but uh, no, it's 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 a it's a fascinating discussion. It's it's always a fascinating discussion. I think it's one that, as moviegoers, I think everybody everybody should have to a certain extent with some of the films that they're talk they love. And it's like, well, why do you love that? And it's like, well, what about you know? And it's like, oh, I love it because it reminds me of this. It's like, well, do you love it because you remind? Do, do you love it as much because it reminds you of that or do you kind of see some of the themes? It's an interesting one. I think, uh, I mean, my work obviously gets called Lynchian quite a lot and everybody knows I love David Lynch and I'm a huge Twin Peaks fan, hence the cherry pie and coffee. Um, <laughs> but I think what people perhaps know less is that I've been a Jungian since I was 11. I was reading Jung when I was 11 and I didn't discover Lynch till I was about 20, you know? <laughs> So um, when it comes to dream sequences and dream symbolism and psychology, like, whew, yeah, the Jung stuff comes first. Yeah. <laughs> 
yeah, like exactly. territory. Yeah. But yeah. Um, Kay, thank you very much for joining me today. I've, thank you, Brian. It has been an absolute pleasure. I, I <laughs> love this conversation. It is very different than we normally have on these discussions. And honestly, that's kind of what I was hoping for. And it certainly was was that. So, um, and we will definitely talk more in the future. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing so much with me today, Brian. It's been, it's been amazing. Thank you. I'd like to thank Kay for joining me on the uh, podcast to talk about Aronofsky. It was a bit of a different uh, way into that discussion than I'm used to, but was also one that I think really afforded us a chance to uh, talk about our different perspectives on Aronofsky. And that's something that is not really... We don't really get a lot on this podcast, and but that's part of the reason why I wanted to have Kay on because I I love talking to her about films. I, I think the way she approaches films, the way she approaches life is very particular and it's very exciting. And if you get a chance to watch Maya at Salem Horror Fest or any other festival, take the chance to do so. If you get a chance to see Black Lake Director's Cut next year, take the chance to do so. Her work is wonderful. Uh, that's going to be it for this episode of the Sonic Cinema Podcast. Uh, thank you very much for Kay for joining me. Thank you very much uh, for everybody who listens. Check us out wherever you listen to podcasts. Got great episodes coming up this summer. And uh, this is, this is going to be an exciting uh, year for the podcast. And, uh, this puts to bed another conversation I was really looking forward to having and really got excited about the way it turned out. So thank you very much for checking me out and always check out my written work at www.sonic-cinema.com. <laughs>